Hello, this is Michael Paley from Budapest. Hello, this is Bria Paley from Queens. And we are doing the Paley's on a Pod podcast. Well, how's it going on Yom Hatzmaut over there? Well, it's, uh, it's of course, it's a big day for me because I love Israel. I've always loved Israel since I went there in 1966. Today, I made my little pilgrimage by tram, not more than 15 minutes away by tram, to the birthplace of Theodor Herzl, hmm. who grew up on Veshalani Street in the 7th District. Yeah, that's right where the Dohan Synagogue is. Actually, it's not only right where the Dohan Synagogue is. When they built the extension of the big Dohan Synagogue, they knocked down Herzl's house in 1908 because they thought he was a lunatic and it wouldn't matter. Oh. I mean, who's going to go, you know, who's going to go to uh, to Asia to live in Asia? It's ridiculous. So, but they're wrong. And last week I spent some time with all of the Mankalim, which are the heads of each of the Israeli ministries, not the ministers themselves, but the director generals. And I had like a whole conversation with them right where Herzl was born. Herzl being the father of the state of Israel. Even though he only lived from 1860 to 1904, um, he was only 44 years old, and he never got to go to see the state of Israel, but he went to pre-state Israel. Why did he die so young? I think that he had moved to Vienna. He had a kind of a nervous condition. He took on an enormous weight by founding the Zionist Congress. He actually um, uh, knew people like Gustav Mahler and Sigmund Freud. They were all his contemporaries in Vienna. And I think that he kind of burned himself out. That's my view of him. He was a foreign correspondent, and he saw the re-rise of anti-Semitism in uh, France in uh, 1894. The one thing to know about about Herzl was that he lived at the end of the 19th century, the 1800s, which was the very best century the Jews ever had. Mm. Just think about the Jews that made an impact on the world, Einstein and Freud and, and Herzl and, well, everybody. My grandfather, you know, the industrialists, the artists, you know, the musicians, all of them, they all were born in the in 18-something. Franz Rosenzweig, Martin Buber, they were all born in the 19th century. It was a fantastic century. So I think at the end of that century, to see anti-Semitism rising again for Herzl shocked him, and that pushed his Zionism. Yeah. Israel's always been very important to our family. You went to Israel for the first time, I think, before you were a year old. Yeah, we used to go every summer. At some point, I think I lost count of how many times I'd been. I haven't been now since um, summer of 2017, so that was... Five years ago, that was a bit of an ill-fated, ill-fated trip for me. Oh, yeah. Well, you want to say something about that? Um, Not the <laughs> ill-fated part, but just the traveling to Israel. Just you, you, you're, you've been to Israel so many times, you must know your way around. I don't really feel like I know my way around all that much. Yeah, I don't know. Every time I go, it's like I have to kind of reorient myself. But I think it's like that with most places I've traveled. Like, I guess if I went back to Sydney, you know, because I lived there for so long, I would know my way around. But I, I also have always been someone who took public transportation. So that for me was was what I, I would have to learn how to get around that way. And now because I can drive, you know, it makes it makes some difference. Like I'm going to a 
meditation gala tonight and I prefer not to drive when I can help it. It's a 13 minute drive or like over an hour on two buses. Oh yeah. You should drive for sure. Yeah. Well, I, I remember you in Israel as a little baby with a purple shirt in the, in Afula, which was a, is a kind of a peripheral town in the central Galilee. And then of course my brother and sister-in-law and their kids live there. So every summer we would go there and, I would take uh, the Bronfman Youth Fellowship, which is a big piece of my life, and you would go to the pool. (laughs) Yeah. And and even sometimes summer camp. Yeah. One time Nama and I went to a summer camp that was all in Hebrew, which was very intimidating. I mean, it probably would have been great if we'd been able to to embrace it. But I think it was so daunting to not understand what anyone was saying. And we were old enough, you know, to to be very aware of that. And I liked hanging out with the Rothman fellows. You know, they were 17-year-olds and very interesting. And um, we also watched um, a lot of movies. Yeah, I do remember that. We had great houses. I don't know. I went to Israel for the first time in 1966. Um, I was 13 years old, and it was so important to me. Um, you know, uh, um, in 1966, Israel was a very small and an extremely weak country, and there was hardly enough food there. It was just kind of, um, uh, but it, it was it was all Jews, and I think that was the first time that I kind of conceived of being in a place of all Jews. Even though the street that I grew up in and the grammar school that I went to were all Jews, mm. and then I went to summer camp in Camp Tanoa, all Jews. So actually, it's not right. Everything was all only Jews. I only grew up with Jews. But Israel was a country and it had soldiers and it had, and it had, and it had cities and mountains. And I worked on the kibbutz and the whole thing was very romantic. I can't begin to tell you. And then the next year was 1967, which was the big uh, six day war. Um, and that was the first time that I saw Jews having power. But I remember I was 15 years old. It was not I wasn't a small kid anymore. And I went with uh, your grandfather, my father, to Boston Commons to hear Ted Kennedy speak for Israel. And then he then there were some guys that had a big plastic garbage can. I think I think it was plastic, but I can't remember that. Um, and people just threw all their money in it. They couldn't give Israel enough money. Mm. And we thought that Israel might be destroyed. And that would have been the second time the Jews had been destroyed in a period of, you know, less than 20 years. It was you know, it was from the Holocaust to, uh, or just slightly more than 20 years, 22 years, um, uh, from the Holocaust to Israel was unbearable to think that, that Jews would be destroyed. And so we were, we were terrified, 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 terrified. But then, um, in the end of the six day war, Israel, um, won and, and, and also occupied the West Bank, which turned out to be a terrible thing in which I've been spent a lot of my life trying to to end the occupation. But at that time, we were just so relieved that Israel was safe. I remember that in, um, in that fall for Halloween, I dressed up as Moshe Diane. So a few years before, I, I, I wore a costume uh, of Fidel Castro, a, a green fatigue and, a, and an eye patch. No, no, a green fatigue and a cigar and a beard, fake beard. So I got rid of the fake beard and the, and the cigar and I got an eye patch and I was Moshe Diane. And it was the first time that I'd ever dressed up for Halloween as a Jew. 
Like, I mean, how would you dress up as a Jew? Like the Lubavitcher Rebbe? I'd never even heard of the Lubavitcher Rebbe. And a lot of my identity was based on, on, on Israel. It was just so amazing to experience that moment in Jewish history and, and in my own life. Yeah, I don't know. I think for me, Israel was always sort of complicated. The conflict. And I remember when um, Yitzhak Rabin was assassinated and all the terror attacks. And when I I was supposed to do a mifgash through uh, the Jewish Community Center and we weren't able to go. So, and, you know, just it always represented like some kind of I don't know, anxiety or aggression or like it, it, it stopped feeling like a safe home place to me. And maybe it's because I grew up going there so often and you went there. How old were you the first time you went there? I was only 13. Yeah. But you're, you know, 13 is like a significant age. Whereas I grew up going there every summer. So it was just like, Oh, this is where we go in the summer. You know, I don't think it felt like significant. In that way. And then, you know, when I went on birthright, well, I did a few things. I did the, um, the, uh, what was the, the writing conference I did? Um, yes. It's called do the right thing, but right. right. We spelled W R I T E. Exactly. Yeah. Do it's the right for, thing. For young journalists. Yeah. I did that one, one year we got to go to the general assembly and I never wrote a piece about that, <laughs> which was my bad. Um, and then I was able to go on birthright in 2005 and it was a Chabad trip. It was Maya note. Oh, really? I didn't, I don't think I remember that. Yeah. It was a Chabad trip. And I really liked that trip. Like the people were very good. The leaders were good. It was May. So it was warmish. And then I, I led, you know, the, the two birthright trips later on, which, uh, was complicated because um, it's complicated to lead a group of 40. It is. 20. So you would know you've, you've done it. I did listen. I, you know, I just listened to myself and I listened to you and, you know, for, for us, Israel was such a pride, such a, such, you know, a, uh, um, you know, so it was so distinctive from Jewish history before Israel. You know, Yomas Mut to me is like the beginning of the next age of Israel, of, of the Jews. You know, I suppose the Shoah, you know, if you, I think about the four most important events in Jewish history, I think about, um, you know, not, not meta history, not like the giving of the Torah and Sinai, but, but actual historical events. Um, you think about the destruction of the first temple, the destruction of the second temple, the Shoah, the destruction of European Jewry, and then the state of Israel. And the positive one is the state of Israel was so prided. My father and mother, but particularly my father loved Israel. He would always say, what a country, what a country. And we were brought up that way. But you, as you say, were brought up with, with the Intifada and, and, and some danger and terrorist activities and, and also the occupation, which is extremely difficult. So you were brought up with Israel controversy. I was brought up with Israel almost indoctrination. And even though I know it was indoctrination, I've never quite lost my, my incredible love of the people of Israel, the Jews in, in, in the state. Mm. Even though I know that it might be the end of Judaism. You know, I, I, I grew up as, as a leftist. Um, my teacher, Everett Gamler, who's recently died, was an anti-Zionist. Um, uh, all sorts of other people had very, you know, left-wing opinions. When I was in college, I signed a petition to give back the West Bank. It was 1971. 
And yet, I've always had a vibrant love of Israel, and maybe I even hope to spend considerable number of years at some point. Hmm. Yeah. Well, I didn't. I didn't get to celebrate Yom Hatzmut this year, but I was. I mean, I was aware of it, and I saw some videos of people in in the city at a at an event. And you know, we have. I have a lot of family on both your brother and and my mother. Most of your cousins brother. live in Israel. Yeah, a lot of cousins live there. Some some are harder to communicate with because they they grew up so religious they don't even speak English. Yes, it's true. Well, what do you think about Israel? I mean, is it an important part of your life? It's an important part of my life, but I think I've felt like I like it's not the the time to go back yet for me. I don't know. I don't know when it will be the right time, but I have to admit that travel in general has become kind of a source of, of more confusion to me lately. And, you know, we're, you and I are both big travelers and we've traveled a lot, but you've often traveled for work and I've traveled for fun and, and as an escape, you know, from, from life when life feels too uh, unmanageable. Uh, which is a lot of the time I would just kind of pick up and go. I mean, I, I remember uh, when I worked at the Daily Telegraph in Sydney, the newspaper, one of my favorite jobs until I was, you know, in a abusive situation with my editor. But I loved I loved that job. But yet I would go on um, online every day. They had what was called uh, the Virgin Blue Happy Hour. And the airline would have a dis- discounted flights to a number of destinations. And that was like a, a drug for me. You know, I'd go mm. on this website and I could go almost anywhere in Australia for like a hundred dollars round trip. And I would just choose a place that I had never been almost anywhere. So I'd go to Byron Bay or Adelaide. Um, you know, I went to the outback. Just for a few days. Yeah, just for a few days even. Um, I'd stay in a backpackers or a hostel. But, you know, I would have to tell them at work. And it was that was always, always difficult was trying to figure out how much freedom I had to to travel versus working. And it and it was it wasn't it wasn't good for me, I think, to make I mean it, it was it was good for me to travel. I'm glad I got to see all these places and meet all these people, but ultimately I think working would have, would have been better for me, but I didn't, I didn't want to know that. I didn't want to hear that. Well, you did go to amazing places. It was kind of like, I don't know about a drug, but maybe more like an elixir. I remember you went to Fiji and you went to Bali and you went to China and Japan and you know, you were just everywhere. I think in, in the world, I, I hardly know anybody that travels as easily or as much as you. You're really almost like a nomad. Yeah, I did. I did feel that way for some time. I think I'm at an interesting point in my life as I'm almost 39 and then 40. And, and it's, I don't know if it's like a midlife crisis. Maybe you experienced this when you were around 40. Because it, it is midlife. I mean, it is, you know. You might get more time, but it's like interesting to like see like what what have I done and what am I doing and what will I do and and asking these questions and hearing other from other people's experiences. And as much as I love traveling, like something shifted for me where it wasn't giving me 
the same feeling anymore. It felt, it felt like, well, but I have to be back in my life with all of my, all the things I'm trying to do in my life. Yeah. I do think that it was a real balance. You know, I, I, I think about the Bible in this and kind of Cain and Abel. Cain was, even his name, Cain, means fastened. You know, he's, he's been acquired of the earth. And Abel, Hubble, means vapor. And I was kind of thought you were always negotiating between trying to stay in one place and just drifting off like a cloud, like vapor. And I agree that it's a real dichotomy in that. On the other end, you know, I, I felt that you saw so many amazing things. I do, I do think that there's a constant uh, wandering in the Bible. Abraham, you know, go forth from your land, your father's house, the place that you were born, and go to the place that I will show you. And I always do kind of feel that you were in search of something, and including maybe self in these places. And in some ways, you know, I, I used to say, oh, no, just stay and go and work, and, you know, you'll, get, you'll lose your job or whatever. Even the, even when you were in the travel business, which you were for a while, I think you're a licensed Australian travel agent. But there was also something dramatic and, and amazing about that. And I'm a traveler, too. I've been everywhere. Yeah, I mean, it certainly has provided a lot of good stories and pictures and all of that. But I don't know, this last trip I went on to Columbia, I just, it just was like, there's something about the way Not Columbia, the university, but Columbia, yeah. right. Columbia. There's something about, about the way I've always traveled that like, isn't working for me anymore. Like I'm, I feel like mm-hmm. I'm, I'm too old to sleep in a hostel, but I'm like too cheap to like pay for a hotel, especially if I'm alone. <laughs> um, and then, and then, yeah, I have to think about what's going to happen with my car and my Airbnb and, um, and all my Zoom meetings, you know, like when I went to the 10 day silent meditation, I had to like tell everyone, like, I'm going to be off the grid for 10 days. And there was some relief in that, but then I came out of it and, and everything was, was piling up. Like I had all these emails, I had all these notifications and it's like, it's a really delicate balance for me how to manage my, my time. Or do you feel like you're good at managing time? I do actually. I do. I, I feel like I fit a lot into my life. I also sleep less than other people. So I have kind of like another couple hours in every day to read. So I do read very late at night and I get a lot of that done. But I've always had also jobs that were calling for me. They were really jobs that I loved. And one of them is uh, travel, you know, taking a group to Spain and exploring uh, medieval Jewish philosophy and even Islamic philosophy in Toledo or Granada or Sevilla or, or Cordoba. Those are, those are great places. Also, Cordoba reminded me of car commercials by Ricardo Montalban. And then, uh, you know, Mummy and I went to Morocco and I got to visit the graves of Jewish saints. And I went to Ukraine. Many times I went to Ukraine. Now, you know, I look at the, at the war in Ukraine. I was, even, even now, I have, I have tickets and reservations to stay in a beautiful hotel in, in Odessa even though I won't get there. Who knows when, I, when we'll ever get there. I, I, hope, that, I hope that I can. Um, but I've been there. I've been to Odessa, I think, for three or four times. So all those places, I, I think w- one of the things about it is for me is that I explore my past, even not my actual past, but my, the history of my consciousness. And, and you've been also amazing at finding branches of the family and, and the roots of your 
of your personality as well. You didn't just go as a tourist. You really went to Italy and saw and found our cousins in, in Australia and all these places. Yeah. I was going to ask you, though, how involved are you now with what's happening in the in the Ukraine? Well, I'm, I'm involved in the following way. Um, uh, Ukraine is very close to I live in Budapest, as we, as we say, at the beginning of our of our podcast. Um, and Budapest is, you know, just as far from Lviv as uh, Boston is from New York. You can drive there in about four and a half, five hours, you know. And I've been to Uzhgorod, which in Hungary we call Ungvar, and I've been to Munkachi, and Ukraine is called Munkachevo. I've been to all through Transylvania, Cluj, Napoca, and Oradia, uh, and, and, and all these places. So, I, so I'm very aware of all of these things um, going on in Ukraine because I, I know the places. Even one of my favorite trips of my whole life was to Ukraine to the little village called Uman on Rosh Hashanah where 40,000 Hasidim in the world go. And I spent it with Rosh Hashanah with my friend Micha Odenheimer, who also is a big traveler. He's the one that organized our trip to Nepal. So as you can hear, I'm not sitting still too often. It affects our life here because we have refugees, you know, thousands and thousands of refugees. If you go near the train stations, there are yellow and white tents where refugees are coming all the time. And I mostly, many days I get up and go to the, the, to the drugstore and buy diapers and uh, fruit yogurts and, you know, shampoos and things like that and give them to Ukrainian refugees coming in. They're all women and children and, and older and old people, men and, men and women, old people, but nobody, no men from like 18 to 60. So it's very weird and it's very scary. And it's scary here because it used to be that Russia occupied Hungary. It was a it was a Russian satellite. It wasn't the worst occupation. Sometimes it was called goulash communism, but still it was communism. It was Russian. People are very afraid that the Russians will come back, and I'm a little afraid that the Russians will come back. Hmm. Wow. Okay. And so it does. It affects us a lot here. I think it's just very close. You know. Yeah, but you're actually going and distributing products to people and do you talk to them or do they just say thank you like what's it like there are four hotels that the that the organization that i work with the joint distribution committee sometimes called the jdc um and also the jewish agency uh, uh run one of the hotels is for people that want to make aliyah bring us back to israel but a lot of people do not want to make aliyah a lot of people you know and they can't make aliyah because their husbands or boyfriends or or sons or even grandparents are trapped in ukraine so they can't really go anyplace. They have to wait to go back to Ukraine. And when will that happen? I mean, there's so much uncertainty that hangs over the air of Hungary and Poland and Slovakia right now. The other way I get to in touch with them is that I've led services, Friday night services. I'm going to lead one tomorrow night in which most of the people that come will be Ukrainians from the hotels. I led services and I did some some weddings of uh, Ukrainian Jews coming in and um, I did a bar mitzvah. and. So, you know, wow. I'm, I'm a rabbi, and so I, I go and do that. And that, that's been, you know, both rewarding and, and heartbreaking, mostly heartbreaking. Mm. I mean, I did this wedding for this couple. You know, what do they have, like four people around them that they had met in the hotel, you know? And uh, they only did it because this, this guy, maybe about 23, slipped over the border, and he just felt if he was married, they wouldn't make him go back to Ukraine. Although I don't, I don't know the answer to that question. Wow. And how'd they find you? Or they just can't, they just asked at the synagogue? No, it's not that they, uh, when they're in the hotels, the JDC, the Joint Distribution Committee, or the Majis, 
which is the Jewish Federation of Budapest, takes care of them. Both the hotel room, they pay for the hotel room, they pay for food, they pay for uh, counseling, which is where should they go next? Should they stay here? Should they go to Berlin? Should they go also, you know, to, mm. to Denmark, to Sweden? You know, these are these are people kind of like my grandparents more than than your grandparents, but Zeta, who are also refugees. And we're a bit better at it now. Hyas is involved with it. So we're really helping them. And it, the people that help them are, are Hungarians that work for the Jewish community. And they, they're the ones that called me and say, can you come and do this? Hmm. So you're happy being there now. Like, is it, is it hard for you to leave when you leave Budapest? I, I am happy in Budapest. My work here, which is a leadership program called the Tarbut Fellowship, is very good. I, I get to do something extremely exciting. You know, I think about what we said in the very beginning of our conversation here, which is about Israel. We think about the Jewish world as Israel and the Galut and the diaspora. And in some way, I have chosen in my life, even though I have so committed to Israel with all of its problems, I understand the occupation, I understand the Palestinian rights, I understand, I, and I, I associate myself with the left. And I spend a lot of time learning you know, some Arabic and dealing with with the Islamic world and Islamic culture. So I'm, I'm quite engaged in that. But still, I've chosen to live in the in the diaspora. I've chosen to live in the Gola. And so what I'm what I'm doing here is this kind of an anti-Zionist enterprise. I'm trying to make life flourish and vibrant and, and livable and compelling in Budapest. You know, a lot of people in Israel was said to me right in the beginning, well, why are you doing that? Just tell them all to come here. But they're Come, they shall come to Israel. Why are they? Why are they living in an inconvenient place like Budapest? And why are you trying to make life better in Budapest? Make it worse? Then they'll come here with the rest of the Jews. But it's not true. It's 150,000 Jews that, or something like that, that live in Budapest, and 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 there's a great richness to this culture and a deep and powerful memory. You know, it's important to even be in the place of Herzl. You know, with the there's a telephone pole with a little statue of Herzl on a bicycle in it. Hmm. I, I, I don't know. So I, I, I think that there's a, a memory of being a Central European, both Polish and Hungarian and Slovakian and even in the Balkans, and that that memory is an important memory to keep alive. I don't think everyone should just live in America. All Jews should live in America and Israel. There should be cultural Judaism. There should be, there should be spiritual Judaism. There should be all sorts of Judaisms. And I'm and I'm working on that here. And is is the language a barrier? Well, I speak Hebrew, um, so I about thirty percent of the day I'm involved with some kind of Hebrew language, which is quite a lot. I only know how to count in he- in Hungarian. So when people ask me questions, I count for them. <laughs> some of the some of the of the numbers are really nice, sounding like Ottomans thirty, T's <laughs> ten, Keta two. You know, so like. I'm often, people say, you know, how are you doing? And I say, 9, 12, 61, 37. And then it's kind of like a football, you know, thing, hike. And they, all, they often laugh at that. So, and it does sound like Hungarian because it is Hungarian. And it has infinite numbers of words because numbers are infinite. That's funny. Well, right now um, I have an Airbnb guest. She's just staying two nights and she has never been to New York. She's from Portland, Oregon. And she's about a little older than me. She works in mental health and she's here because she's trying to get her Slovakian citizenship. Really? Yeah. Well, speaking of traveling, when we came here 10 years ago, 
your mother and I thought we would love the Czech Republic because that's Prague and things like that. You went to Prague as a teenager with your choir, but we really love Slovakia and the Tatra Mountain Natural Reserve. So we go to Slovakia in a place called Strupka Plesko, which has these beautiful lake and great hotels around it. And so we, I don't think I ever thought I would go to have little vacations in Strupka Plesko, but there it is. <laughs> Well, she um, she's already thinking about, you know, being able to retire there. And I guess they only just recently allowed dual citizenship between uh, America and Slovakia. So that's interesting. I think Slovakia is in the European Union. So I think once you're in there, you can live all over Europe. Well, yeah, I want to get yeah. mommy put a lot of effort in getting uh, Polish citizenship, but she never got it. I know. What, what, why did she not get it in the end? Lack of documentation? Yeah, you know, because the Holocaust destroyed most of the records. And also most of, of Zayda's records, your grandfather's records, were in what's now called Belarus. Um, and so they they were just not cooperative. It's too bad because your grandfather actually was Polish. So, like, yeah. you're trying to prove something that actually is true. Like, sometimes you try and prove something that's not true, but anyways, you need it. But this, that's not the case here. So we're trying to prove it that it is true. I know. I was disappointed that she didn't get it in the end. I know it would be it would be good for you because then you could live in the EU. I don't know if I if I want to. I don't know where to live anymore. Well, I do you feel like an American. Uh, I mean, I do. Yeah, because I grew up here and my accent is American, and all my family, most of my family's here. And but I don't. I don't know if I should like. You know, things in our family are changing. Right, my sister Nama is moving to New Orleans. And who knows what's happening with you and mommy? There's no fellows next year, right? So. No, not because of the pandemic. I couldn't recruit that last year. Yeah. So you don't know what you're going to do if you stay there. And there just feels like a lot of change is happening. And I also don't know if I can handle another New York City winter. So I'm just thinking about about my options. Well, it is. I, I think, you know, being on a theme of travel and. And place, which I think is really what our conversation has been about, we might not have brought you up and we might not have felt ourselves anchored in a place. You know, even when we moved to New York, I was working at Columbia. It was kind of like a village in New York. It didn't really feel like New York. You could walk to New York. You could take a subway to New York. But but Columbia was like, you know, people knew you on the streets and it was kind of uh, surrounded by, you know, um, Columbia Walk was like a inside the fortress, you know, and and I was a, a visible figure in it. So it was interesting. But I, I don't know if we gave you or even us really a sense of home in the way that. Only now in my in, in you know, in my 70th year, do I think that it would have been important to do that? I never thought it was important. I kind of think I, I want you to be a nomad and I think I myself want to be a nomad. Hmm. Well, there's a lot more nomads these days because people can work remotely. I mean, that's the reason that so many people are able to pick up and move to different places that otherwise they wouldn't have been able to. New York, New York City is very expensive. And, you know, it's I don't know. I have to figure it out. I figure out what I'm doing. I mean, I, I love I still love my apartment. It is a bit of, it's a bit of a pain getting into Manhattan all the time. The other day I sat on the M60 bus for a solid hour. <laughs> it was just really? barely moving. It was some kind of New York City 
five borough bike ride, which I'm sure was lovely, oh, yeah. but very much interrupted yes. my my plans for the day. Um, and I I like this idea of going on a road trip. I've been invited to stay in Charleston, which I've never been to Charleston. Oh, yeah. I've been invited there, and I have some Beautiful. friends from the ayahuasca ceremonies that live in Hilton Head, and I have some friends in Toronto. I have a new friend I met through my writing class. She is BPD and she lives in Indianapolis and we are trying to start something together. Mm. Well, I, yeah, I don't know. Now I listen to you and I say, Oh, Bria, she's going to be on the road again. It's kind of like that song. I'm on the road again, but I don't know. You know, where's home in some way. I think my commitment to Israel is because it's the ultimate home, you know, Israel, the homeland of the Jews. But even in Israel, you know, will I be able to really feel at home? I don't know. Will you ever be able to feel at home? When Nama and Stephen moved to New Orleans, I think he feels at home there. But will Nama feel at home in the South? You know, Gabe, our son. Um, uh, Bria's brother tried to live in Boston for the years out of college. And I think he moved there because it was my home, you know, and that whole part of the family. But he came back to New York and I think now he feels like he's in New York and he'll probably stay here. But I don't think this is just about us. Actually, I think that this dichotomy between travel, being a nomadic person and being at home sedentary is a big uh, challenge. In the modern world, particularly because yeah. we can work from anywhere. Yeah. It would be nice if you guys had a, a place, you know, that we could all go to. Well, we have a house that we have in uh, south of Boston in Nantasket. We've had it for yeah, 70 years not, in our family. That's not just ours. And it's far from New York. Like if we had a place like like where Everett and Mary, you know, lived, live like in Great Barrington, like. Like, that would be great. You know, like a two-hour drive out of New York and all hang out there and maybe there'd be a pool and we could all have barbecues with tofu and veggie sausages and, or, oh. or you know, Stephen would probably cook something else. and like have that's some meat. What? Yeah. Yeah, meat. Yeah, like that. that's like the vision I have for the future, you know, but, but if not now, when? Because you're 70, right? So you're not going to do this in 10 years. You'll be too old. No, I think we have to do it now, and I, and I and I want to do it now. But I'm just not done, quite done with Europe yet. Yeah, and the market's bad. Isn't it like a bad time to buy? Like, there's all these like variables. I also have realized that I I have quite a complicated relationship to money. Like, I I don't know if I just never really learned how to manage money, or if I've been like living in this weird place where like my identity doesn't make sense. Like, I feel like I'm like a poor person who lives off the government, but I'm like a rich person from like a well-to-do family who's educated and grew up in, you know, a beautiful part of Manhattan. It's like, it's just a very, and, and also there's this whole kind of like scarcity versus, versus abundance, you know, like, will I make more money or is this all the money I, I'll have for a long time? And what do I spend it on? And who do I trust? And a lot, this is like the cause of a lot of my anxiety, I think, is like fear of, will I make money again? Well, I, I think that uh, 
some part of this conversation and some underlying part of the conversation is about fear. You know? Yeah, fear is coming it's, up a lot. And fear comes up a lot. Trauma in the past comes up a lot. And I think in some ways the moving from place to place, you know, you've moved a lot and we moved a lot. Possibly about uh, the fear of putting down roots, the fear of of becoming all of a sudden mundane, going to work every day or not even going to work every day, but just doing the same thing every day. Routine. We've never, our family never been particularly good at that and or even accepted in this in a way that, you know, if we had done that, you'd maybe feel more secure, but maybe feel less interested. I could be wrong about that. And I do think we should devote an entire podcast to money. Yeah. It's a very interesting topic. Mm. It's a good, interesting topic about religious outlook and philosophy. So right. I think I've thought a lot about it. I just never put my mind into making a lot of money. <laughs> so <laughs> that's it. Yeah. And what it means to like be taken care of or have your situation change. And, and I also, I'm, I'm single. So I, I don't have someone to always make decisions with. Yes, I know. There's a lot of fear in that. Well, I think this was a wonderful conversation with you and I, as usual. Deeply appreciate it. Well, I deeply appreciate you. And this will probably be your 70th birthday gift as <laughs> this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll try and get into a rhythm and do it all the time. Each yeah, week. let's do it each week. Also, it's Mother's Day and I don't... Mommy's leaving anyway, so I won't get to see her on Mother's Day. But, um, but I guess shout out... Shout out to mommy. Shout out to Andy DeBracher, love of my life. <laughs> you, you won't get to see her mother's day, but I will. And I deserve that. Because even though you made her mother, I had a hand in it or something in it. Sure. And then are you going, you're going to Sicily? Um, um, uh, it's mommy's birthday. And so we're going to go take a short trip to Sicily because we're just travelers. We're always travelers. <laughs> oh. Bye, Bria. Love you. Bye. Love you, Daddy.